Anyway, she goes to bed. I open up a box out of Barbara's. I light up. I call myself a cognac. Uh. And I watch the 14 fists of McCluskey. <laughs> what a picture. Yo, homie, that my briefcase? And start asking the right fucking questions. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the One Heat Minute Productions Patreon. I'm your host, Blake Howard. This is our rum and rant series, but it's just a lie, guys. I don't drink a lot when I'm doing this. I feel sad that I actually say that it's a rum and rant because it started out with these kind of late night conversations. And now so much, it's the first thing in the morning in Australia. So I get to talk to all of my great international guests, like the person that I'm talking to today. They are the senior editor at Letterboxd. They write at Film Stage, Pace, Playlist News, Little White Lies. They are one of my favorite uh, covetous uh, views on on Twitter because they also have a, uh, a beat in the physical media as we do here. They are Mitchell Beaupre. Mitch, thank you so much for coming back. It's so good to see you. And uh, sorry about the lie. I'm not drinking rum this morning. I did have a little bit of coffee. So let's call it roast and rant this morning as we uh, snuggle up and talk about truly a film that has been nudging my letterbox top four forever. <laughs> and I haven't podcasted about it. So why not talk about it with you? Yeah, why not, man? I'm, I really appreciate you having me back. I appreciate the the preamble too, because when I first came on, when we did Jackie Brown. I was a little bit insecure with coming on for the rum and rant series because I don't drink. Like I haven't had a drink in like 10 years. So I felt a little bit like maybe I wasn't, maybe I wasn't uh, an appropriate guest for it. So roast and rant a little bit more of my speed for sure. Roast and rant. I think I might have to do like an alternate version with a coffee cup. That might make sense. Cause uh, the, the, <laughs> the, 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 the roast and rant is, is so what I end up doing. I'm here. I have like a sneaky coffee. I come in in the morning. I talk. And then I go off and live the rest of my my day and uh, and 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 start a day as a dad instead of a film nerd as I'm <laughs> doing right now. Uh, but we are talking today about a movie that I don't know. Somehow, it's it's absolutely stupid how this movie makes me feel every time I watch mm. it. I just can't believe that every single like atom of this thing continues to just blow me away. Every minor performance, every background character, every establishing shot, framing, literally the wood carved totems that somehow are in people's offices blow me away. But that's all of the ephemera. That's the tapestry. What we're talking about is Joel and Ethan Cohen's unbelievable 1996 film Fargo once upon a time looks like she's gonna turn cold tomorrow yeah you got that right there was a salesman called Jerry Lundergaard okay real good then. who always dreamt of striking it rich wait have you had a chance to think about that deal I was talking about those 40 acres there in Wyzetta Jerry we're not gonna just give you $750,000 no no but see I so, we all set on this thing then? You want your own wife kidnapped. Not her dad. He's real well off. So, why don't you just ask him for the money? <laughs> Come on! 
Wade, it's Jerry. I don't know what to do. It's something hard, geez. It's terrible. But in a place called Fargo... Mr. Lundegaard, I'm a police officer. I'm not Brainerd, investigating some malfeasance. Anything can happen. How's Jean? Who's Jean? Ah! My wife. Oops! <laughs> All due respect, Jerry, I don't want you mucking this up. What the heck do you mean? No Jean, no money! Who are you? Circumstance that changed, Jerry. What the heck do you mean? Blood has been shed, Jerry. Here's the second one! I want you to tell me what these fellas look like. Well, the little guy, he was kind of funny looking. Can you be any more specific? He wasn't circumcised. Jeez, that's a good thing. Yeah. From the creators of Barton Fink. I'm cooperating here. And there, there's no, uh... And Raising Arizona. What do you fellas got yourself mixed up in? Oh, jeez. You're there in 30 minutes where I find you, Jerry, and I shoot you, and I shoot your wife, and I shoot all your little children, and I shoot all the back of the little kids. You got it? <laughs> you should see the other guy. Oh, jeez. Fargo. End of story. That has since spawned a quite terrific and diverse series of TV, but... Right back at the very beginning, William H. Macy, Steve Buscemi, Peter Stormare, of course. <laughs> Kristen Rodrid, who is delivering one of the most fantastic performances almost ever. But let's not forget Francis McDormand as Marge Gunderson and a real one of my guys, an absolute sweetie pie in this movie, the, perhaps the sweetest husband of all time and also one of the greatest serial killers in modern cinema, John <laughs> Carroll Lynch as Norm Gunderson. Yes, we're talking about Fargo. Man, this movie is so wonderful. And then the other thing is that you have unbelievable cinematography by the great Roger Deakins and something that I think is just the worst ever that it's not recognized, I guess, from an award standpoint, is Carter Burwell's score, mm. which is just so haunting and beautiful and instantly lumping your throat into saying, there is so much to talk about with this movie. Um, like, we could even spend an hour just talking about S Steve Buscemi's turtlenecks, um, but we won't. Uh, we have a list that we, you know, an unreleased list of movies that we've been dancing around to decide to talk together but we mm -hmm. were both lent into this one so what what are the what are the moments that truly breathe life into this thing for you mitchell oh yeah that's a great question um yeah i think like you like you said at the top there i think fargo is a really tremendous movie in that no matter how many times i watch it i still you kind of get that thing it's like a cliche but you feel like you're watching it for the first time every time you put it on and yes. like it is, it's so much a comfort movie for me, but in a way where like, like a lot of comfort movies are those ones that you kind of can just put on the background whenever, or like you tune in, like you can catch it in the middle of it and you watch the rest of the movie. If I catch with the middle the, of Fargo. With the greatest respect, Lethal Weapon. I yeah. can put that on any day of the week. <laughs> I don't have to see 40 scenes. Like there might be 60 scenes the whole movie. I don't have to see 40. I can just be walking around, walk through, mm -hmm. do the dishes, take out the trash, you know, ironing and, le and yeah. I can hear Riggs! Like I can hear that. <laughs> I don't have to watch. It's like, it's deep comfort, but exactly. I can't wait to hear what you've got to say here. Yeah. For me, Fargo is like, it's, it's an interesting one where it is that, but at the same time, it's also like, if I see, if I catch like the middle of it, 
I have to go back and watch it from the beginning. So like yes. if my partner just like has Fargo on or they're like, hey, I want to watch Fargo. Like, you know, I'm going to I'm going to start watching Fargo and I'm in the middle of something. I'll be like, no, you can start it in an hour when we can start it together. Right? <laughs> like I I need like to watch this movie, especially from the top, like the top. You get the Deacon cinematography. You see that white sheet of snow coming in. You get the Burwell score immediately. Yeah. It just feels like this like old timey, like mythic fable, like coming in like this this lost kind of thing that you're discovering the story that people have told for generations about these fucking idiots you know <laughs> in in Brainerd and the one woman who took them down the one like the sweetest woman in the world who took them down and went home to her beautiful lovely husband and they're just watching TV at the end of the day you know cuddled up like it is it's such a fascinating blend of some of the most like tense, terrifying moments put to film. And then also the sweetest, most charming things. Like it wraps you up in a bundle. The roast and rant, you know, of it all is, is right for Fargo. Like it feels like you're being wrapped up while also on the edge of your seat for, you know, over 90 minutes. That's the other miraculous thing. It's like an hour and it's, it's like, a hun- um, uh, sorry. It's like, one hour 38 is yeah. the total runtime of this thing. And that includes credits and how, just how iconic characters are. Mm. I can't get Shep Proudfoot out of my head. Mm. He's been there since like 97, <laughs> like since the first time I saw this on a VHS, cause I don't think I saw it in a cinema in Oz. I don't think it had any kind of release and it since had retro screenings, which you can be extremely thankful for. Um, all around Sydney, some great houses here um, at Cremorne, Orpheum in Sydney and, and the Ramwick Ritz, just both just killing it constantly with, you know, 70 mil and 35 mil classics doing it on the rotation. But yeah, I, I agree that it's funny. I, I will put this on and I'm, I'm more the uncompromising partner. Like I'm watching Fargo <laughs> yeah. and my wife will walk in and be like, you're watching Fargo again? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> Can we watch something else? No, 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 no. It's there's only 50 minutes left. Just we need to watch the last 50 minutes, and then I'm gonna just sit there wistfully and, and imagine. But I can't also can't get over the alchemy of those things. There's an alchemy of it's so funny, like instantaneously hilarious, but at the same time, has this like gravity that you are always aware that 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 stupid decisions. I don't don't know if any other movie does it better that like just stupid carelessness has such dire ramifications. And so now every scene that you watch, no matter how funny it is, no matter how silly it is, whatever, when you're watching it again, even though it's done that magic trick that it's, it's put you in that kind of haze of not remembering everything. And you're kind of trying to piece it together as it's coming back in front of you. You just get this something in the pit of your gut goes, these people are so stupid that this is going to go even more wrong than we imagine. Mm. And, mm-hmm. and so I think that that's a kind of miracle that it manages to, to, to work over and again. And it's so damn impressive. Yeah, I think that you can pick apart like so many of the, the individual scenes where it's like like a moment where Stormare and Busemi go to break in and kidnap her, right? Like that's yes. such 
a great distillation of what this movie is doing because when they first break in even for her like she is like looking and seeing these guys outside of you know her back her back door her back glass door and she's like confused like she's kind of like like almost amused by like what is this like what's going on like I want to lean in and see what's going on and like as an audience it's like kind of funny at first because it's just so odd it's not something that you would expect in everyday life and then immediately it becomes terrifying but it that scene has right that like perfect balance that thread of being absurd to the point of hilarity but also still having those stakes and that fear the scene where storm air goes into the bathroom Mm -hmm. and like clocks that she's in the shower and it's like she's stumbling out she's stumbling all over the place and it's kind of funny but it's also like the scariest thing that you've ever seen because you can feel the terror in her and the panic that is like setting over her and i mean you see it again when they get out of the car at like the little you know shack out in the woods that they're staying at and she runs away and they watch her run away and like you can tell like it's obviously really funny for Buscemi not really for Stormare but it's also it's so sad and like you just you know watching the the whole movie you know that like this is not going to end well right like this is it's fun and it can be entertaining but it's also got that gravity to it that you, you nailed something which is like so many films and we are genre people so so mm-hmm. many films we watch it's the kidnapped person making the dash you know mm. in other movies it's a huge thing that's built up i'm gonna dash i'm gonna dash and somehow they make it and even in terrific movies like um kiss the girls for example is one where like ashley judd escapes and she's being mm. chased by this serial killer and you're like holy shit and she goes to the woods and she's all beaten up to hell and then she jumps off into the water and she survives and it kicks off the next cycle of events in that movie and you're like oh my god you know it's harrowing stuff but here, the Coens just go, they, they place this like reality filter and go, no, they're in an isolated shack. She's bound. Mm-hmm. She can't see anything. And she's going to make this heroic escape. And in some movies, they would, you know, shoot her, you know, where's the horizon? Like they would shoot her <laughs> as, the, as this heroic escape. And in this, they just take a very objective, almost like a surveillance kind of view of her coming out, stumbling, them walking out slowly, observing her run around listlessly, directionless, like can't get it, can't orient herself in any way. And then she like falls down and they just drag her back. And it's just so sad because you're like, there's no hope. That's what they've been able to do. They just take hope out of the equation. And it's so ferocious and real that you're like, ugh. This is bad. Every single bit of it is bad. Yeah. And I think too, when you like compare it to something like, like it's, it's a really um, deft, like tonal balance that they hit because you compare it to something like burn after reading, which is almost like very similar in the sense that it's like a bunch of morons fucking up and like stumbling over (laughs) each other. And like the thing that you said of like, every time you think that it can't get worse, somebody makes a stupid decision (laughs) and it gets worse. And like Burn After Reading, which is also a movie that I love, Love is like really, really funny because it leans into the stupidity of it. And you're kind of, you know, you're laughing at the characters during that. But then like Fargo, it has these like really serious stakes to it where everybody feels so real. And I love what you said about how like it's only 98 minutes, but every single one of these characters pops so much. Even the the people who are just in one scene, like the 
I always uh, am struck by the scene with Buscemi where he goes to like kind of surveil the the parking garage that they're going to try to make the money exchange at. And he goes to he goes in, he surveils it, he goes back out. And like the person working at the booth is like confused that he's leaving, like he still wants the money from him. Buscemi's trying to say like he changed his mind and <laughs> like this guy, I don't even know the name of the actor, but the guy is giving such a like exquisite performance because you understand that like this dude is just trying to do his job but you also get that Buscemi a guy that we have grown to kind of like hate but also enjoy hating you also feel his frustration and the fact that this guy is still like requesting money from him and won't just let him go and you get like why he's so mad and I feel like that's such a like palpable thing that Fargo does where it is there's so many moments and conversations in this movie like that are just these like tete-a-tetes these dialogue scenes between two characters where one character is trying to get something that to them seems so simple so easy so obvious and the other character just won't let them have it like no matter what they will not let them have it the scene where um William H. Macy is trying to like upsell these people on this true coat oh that they're God. trying to put on on this car. And the guy, the guy is so fucking mad that like they did not ask for this true coat. They don't want the true coat. And every single line that Macy gives back to him is like, okay, well, we can, you know what? I may I'll give you a deal. We can cut, we can get a hundred dollars off the true coat. And like you just see the temperature rising with this dude, like so much. And it's like Fargo is like a just a series of those interactions where people are just like raising their bar because people won't just let them get these things that they want. And and it's so many of these things where people haven't tied up their loose ends when they've made a mistake or whatever, mm-hmm. or whether or, or prepared for like go and pay the parking attendant twice so he doesn't remember you. So there's no exchange. They're not crooks who have good tradecraft. And the other Macy one, which kills me every time is like, Mr. Lonegard, I just need those serial numbers. Uh, sorry, <laughs> I, I, oh, I don't have them in front of me. Let me fax them over. I'm looking at a fax, but I've got the loan. Oh, I'm from audit. I'm looking. Can you just read them out? It, it, I, I love that because there are so many things in your life. If you are, you know, we all in our lives have had to work different jobs and you have that sucky thing to do. Mm-hmm. Your sucky job is to go, I need this. I'm sorry. I can't give you what you need because I need this piece of paper. And someone's like, mm-hmm. I don't have it on me. And you're like, well, I need it. And like, oh, I don't have it. Can you just do it? And, and you've had to be that person on the other end of the phone that's like, you just are like, I'm sorry, but I need this to do, to, to get it done. And I'll have to call you back or whatever we're going to have to do. And everyone knows that kind of like, I don't know, bludgeoning bureaucracy where he's mm-hmm. just like, Oh my God, I don't want to ask you for this. I know I don't want to ask you for this, but I, I need it. I've got everything I need, but you just send me this piece of paper. I'm going to hit yes on whatever I'm <laughs> processing. So it's done. And so I just love that. But yeah, you're so right. It's just people, the stakes of each individual interaction, they both have these kind of like really relatable things. Like I don't want to pay for park. Like I just drove in and drove out. Why am I paying yeah. $5? Oh, <laughs> and, and, and at the same time, you're also like, well, I'm a parking attendant, man. If you come in and you leave and I don't charge you, my bosses see that and they go, why didn't you charge that person? And I don't want yeah. trouble. So, oh man, it's so wonderful. Um, I do have to shout out. It is, uh, <laughs> it's Gary, Gary Houston, um, and Sally Wingard are the actors who play that irate customer and mm. his wife. And Sally Wingard so is so good because she's like, "Hun, 
Hunt and she's just like trying to temper him down. And <laughs> she, she's just like, let's just pay and get out of here. Like you can see her face is like, let's just get out of here. Like it's so frustrating that we're even having this conversation. So good. Yeah. I love it. Love she's it. just like, she's embarrassed that it's even like a situation that's happening and she's just trying to like mitigate it and like let things go but he won't let it and you get it because like i mean i feel like i would be so pissed if i was that guy and this guy will just not like every time you hear him you hear macy say true coat you just like you feel like that the tension rising like it's the last thing that he should be it's the last word or phrase he should be saying in that moment and he can't stop saying it and the thing is about it is that he's that that irate customer he and his wife are from <clears throat> they're from that town and they don't want to make a scene and they're mm. at their local place and it is unconscionable to them that someone will be trying to manipulate them it's just mm-hmm. like no like i've we made an agreement i came in here with the money and you know these days people just go well, i'm not paying it like i don't know about you <laughs> i like like there, there was a time where um, there was a time where we got a new car and, and they asked if we wanted some special window tinting or something. And I was like, no, I'm fine. <laughs> and we, our windows were tinted when we got it. <laughs> and I had my Fargo moment where I was like, wait a second. <laughs> and I checked the bill and they'd like just given it to us. Right. They just, it mm-hmm. was, it wasn't, it wasn't an extra. And I was like, okay, well that's nice of them. Thank you. Tick. Yeah. Great. Fantastic. But at the time, I remember going like, I'm going like, I will go back and say, if you charge me for that freaking window tinting, I want my money back. I told you I didn't want it. Um, but, yeah. you know, it's a completely different, it's a completely different world. But that's, yeah, it's just, oh man, it's wonderful. It's, it's so good. I want to shout out Steve Park. Who yes. plays Mark oh my God. Yes. Uh, his beautiful scene with Marge Gunderson, where they hook up as friends is such it's such a beautifully desperate attempt to recapture something from your youth. Mm. And it's so relatable because it's like, you see a old flame and all of the absurdity levels as a, as you would have it in a Coen Brothers movie that she's literally pregnant with another mm-hmm. man's wife. But she's like <laughs> literally on the job. She's there exclusively to do an investigation and like, you know, they see each other, but it's, and 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 him just being clueless to the signs of reading what what in Israel. But I just love that Ugh. scene because he's such a beautiful damn character. He's just so sweet and so clueless. And poor Marge is just around cluelessness in her entire life, except for Norm. And I mm-hmm. I love that scene so much. I watch it and it it's so tragic comic in that best way that you it you can't describe. Yeah, it it really uh, it makes your skin crawl, but in that kind of a in that in that de- that desperate sad way, and I think that it's a brilliant scene too because it is like the one moment where Marge shows like a little bit of a little bit of like the the like the flaws that some of the other people show in the movie because she she could be like very like altruistic through the whole movie she could be almost like pollyanna-ish and like how perfect she is but and she's not really doing anything wrong here she's just meeting up with you know an old friend but the fact that she doesn't tell her husband makes it seem like a little bit like she there might be something that she's interested in here or like even if she's not like 
pursuing anything or would never act on anything. Maybe even the idea that, you know, an old flame would still be interested might be like appealing to her. But so it like it shows a little bit of that kind of layer to her where she's not maybe as perfect as she seems initially. But then it's also that's the moment where the things kind of turn for her because above all else, she also is such a fucking good detective in this movie (laughs) in a really unassuming way too. She's not, she's not Sherlock Holmes, you know, she's not wowing everybody with how she puts it all together, but she knows what she's doing, right? She's good at her job. And so like this moment where she feels that she's been deceived by this guy who appears really nice and kind of has, it's, it's really the moment where she finds out from her friend that his wife uh, like didn't die after he said that, you know, his wife died. Um, and that's the moment where she thinks back to that conversation with Macy and realizes that he was like kind of playing her. And that's the thing where it all comes together for her. So that scene, while also being this like immaculate little short film of just two people who are reconnecting after a long time and having this really awkward like that that would play so beautifully as just a short film in a festival somewhere with two actors just knocking it out of the park or on like stage like it would be perfect in a theater and it is it's the crux it's that turning point for you know to get us to the climax of the movie where everything all the shit hits the fan We'll be right back after this little break. And you're so right. It's because it's that whole, the whole thing in this movie is the assumption of cordiality and civility and like community and everyone who is undercutting it along the way. And Marge is so great because she smells bullshit and she, Mm -hmm. and that scene here she could never think it's not in her in her sweet mind that and and this is the turning point for her and probably her entire career is like a great detective but it's like Mm -hmm. she would never think that the husband would be in on it because because of exactly that fact that he is out there to exploit which is like not only is she a great wife they've got a kid but she's really wealthy and if he needed money She's putting the things together in her head. If he needed money, why yeah. not ask the dad? It's the same question that Bashemi asked, but it's the implied question mm-hmm. here of like, why don't you just ask the dad? If he's rich, well, ask your wife. Like, oh, man. <laughs> and like, he's like, oh, we're not going to get into that. You know, <laughs> he's just like, <laughs> it completely. But that's what's so funny. He's like, oh, well, if someone could be so self-serving that they would lie about this and I'll get dressed up and try and make them feel better or whatever. Mm-hmm. then of course it opens the door for him to be an absolute shit. Of course. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, then that flip. And I just love, I love the Macy scene. I love Macy in his office in this movie, Jerry, when she's asking him questions and he's just leaning in his chair and rocking, <laughs> not saying a word. And then he's like, Brainerd. There's <laughs> like nothing to say except where she's from. Um, but yeah, that's really spectacular. I, I have to love, um, we've talked about some of those big centerpiece scenes, but my God, Steve Buscemi, Peter Stormare in the cars together, this mm. movie, just those two guys just in the car together. It's absolutely sensational. And, and I also love I'm fans of the Colin brothers. You guys know, this, this is kind of like lore, but it is the one, two punch of Fargo and Lebowski where mm. Steve Buscemi does not shut up in this movie. He then <laughs> inherits the role of Donnie in The Big Lebowski. And 
that is why Walter Shobchak, played by um uh playing by John Goodman, is constantly telling him to shut the fuck up. It's almost <laughs> like a payment for this movie. And I just love it. So when he's talking, I also have this thing now where I like see. I can feel like in the back of my subconscious, the big Lebowski is projecting and I'm just like, yeah. Donnie, shut the fuck up. <laughs> fuck up You're out of your element, Donnie. Like, like, <laughs> I, I can't help but see it. So I love these scenes, but Storm is just like so amazing. And you just know the whole time that he's just like quiet and silent. There's that other thing where like Shep Proudfoot, the moment even that Macy interacts him in the mechanic, he feels like he's a badass. Like he mm-hmm. feels like he's like not mucking around and, mm-hmm. and, and whereas Buscemi just talks and talks and talks and talks and mm-hmm. you never think that he's actually going to do anything. Um, but Stormare, like it, 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 it pays off so much later for those two. I just love their relationship in this movie. Yeah. John Mulaney has that bit about how like some people just give off that vibe of like, do not fuck with me. Yes. And like, you could feel that like with those two guys that Sorbear is a guy that if I saw him on the street, I would, you know, walk to the other side of the street. I would You'd not go like, near this guy. No, I'm good. Thanks. Yeah. I'll, I'll take the other side. I'll, I'll go the Whereas Busevi is a guy, you know, I mean, he's just, he's just a guy. He's just a sad, a sad man. And like, it's, oh my God, the conversation, yeah, the conversations with them in the car, the pancakes house shit, like Sorbear just says what, you know, says the things that he wants. And he knows exactly what he's after. He know, and he knows too that he is like such like a badass that like he's gonna get what he wants too. Like if he wants to go to Pancake's house, they're gonna go to Pancake's house. Like Busemi's not gonna talk him out of it. And no matter how much he fucking talks, and like those scenes of like Busemi like committing, Busemi committing to like he's not gonna talk for the rest of the time, and then immediately starts talking again. And it's like you get so many great. I mean the quotes in this movie like live like in my like cerebral cortex for like my entire <laughs> life. Like I cannot shake them. And like the bits, like who sent me, that's a foul in a conversation, man. That's a geyser. I mean, Whoa, daddy, like that's stuff, his delivery of it is just stuck in my head forever. And like, I mean, even, even Marge doing, um, when she finds it at the end, uh, like that's the car, that's the car, Tansiera, Tansiera. Like yeah. I, you can't like shake the delivery that these characters give. And it's so, I don't even know like what the, the quality is something ineffable about just the, the perfect accumulation of how they deliver them in the moments, like how everything is constructed, that it seeps into your bones in a way that like, it's not an iconic quote where. Like some of the, some of the big ones, Houston, we have a problem or whatever, you know, are ones that it's like, they're built in the moment, right. In the movie, the movie builds a scene around this quote, but these ones in Fargo, there's no quote that's like trying to be the quote or anything. And I feel like that, that unassuming quality about them just really gets that dialogue stuck into your head. It's, it's that like, there's something about tiny quotes because it's so damn perfect that end up making everything amazing. Like there's like, like the one that I love is you don't happen to have a spare ticket to the golfers, do you? And the guy goes, (laughs) are you kidding? I love that guy. I, 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 anyone else with a stupid question. Yeah. He gets so (laughs) mad. His face is so animated. It's so wonderful. But it's, it's those things that I just love how he starts talking about the tower in the Twin mm. Cities, about how it's the tallest next to Sears. I love that. That's so stupid. Um, but I am <laughs> looking forward to this year 
listening to the letterbox podcast when someone like drops a bomb in an episode and you're like wow man that's a that's a foul that's a geyser in this conversation <laughs> I'm just, I'm, I'm, I, that's an easter egg i'm looking out for that's all i'm saying uh, i'll but- keep it in mind i'll start i'll feed it into every single every single one somewhere <laughs> um but <clears throat> and i there's other things that like the repetition coen brothers are, movies are amazing for repetition lebowski mm-hmm. too like so much of the dialogue is repurposed and reset and said by different characters, at different times of the movie. But I also just love, um, I, I really love the father, um, the father character. Sorry. It's uh Harvey Presnell who plays Wade um, Gustafson and him talking about Stan Grossman, like Grossman, Grossman, Stan Grossman, Grossman. I, the, the name Stan Grossman is in my head. Like if I ever hear Grossman, like, even if it's like people like Lex Grossman, I'm like, no, Stan Grossman, Stan Grossman. <laughs> Stan Grossman. You know, you just have like, I, it's something about that, the, the, the cadence of things that sometimes stick yeah. into your head. It's just a turn, tiny turn of phrase, but yeah, it's an insanely quotable movie. And just like, just like getting up to make you some eggs. Okay, Margie, I'll go make you some eggs. <laughs> you know, I remember when my wife was pregnant, I just always say, okay, Margie, I'll go make you some eggs. <laughs> you know, it's just the best. You just like, that's the aspirational husband thing of yeah. going like, he's the best husband in movies. I got to go get up and just make some eggs and just constantly keep the wife fed, you know. Yeah. Um, but that was, you know, it's beautiful. It's It's got all of that. And then one thing I want to, let's, let's circle back to the score. Mm. I, I, it, it is like it is pulled out of our past. I don't know mm-hmm. how, I don't understand how they found it. It's almost like they found a recording of something um, and just played it so melancholically and perfectly that it like, it connects. And I think that sometimes music choices in movies have that where it's like, not necessarily like needle drops, but something that just has some more like profound connection um, that can kind of cut through. Um, in the contemporary movies, it was just like, um, uh, Ludwig uh, Göransson figuring out the whole uh, Black Panther and getting African music, yeah, weaving it into that. You know, you're something just kind of transportative qualities and and those sorts of things. But man, I I love this score so much. I could listen to it a thousand times. The moment you put it on, I'm just like, nah, it's all over. I'm gonna go have to watch Fargo again. I just, it's it's incredible. Yeah, it's such a vibe. Like it makes you feel like like driving at night, like alone on like a very like, you know, wintry highway or like like to me, it feels like something that like you would hear around like a campfire, you know, like hundreds of years ago. And it has that that like mythic quality to it. And it like comes in like very like lyrical and slow. And the way that he just fucking builds it like gets just you layers on. Layers, yeah. And he's just like, but by the time the orchestra is blaring it at the end of the film, you're like, Oh my God. Yeah. And I think that's something that's so keys into what is tremendous about this movie too, is that it is ultimately such a small story, right? It's just mm. these, you know, little characters doing these petty crimes in this small town and like these are people that you know we could bump into on the street one day and but it has such a mythic quality to it and it feels so larger than life it feels like this is like the story this is like conrad you know like but it's it really is just small characters and i feel like that's something the the fargo show does really well too where it feels larger than life even though it is as like small town life as you could possibly get with this kind of stuff yeah it's it, I love that you just said Conrad because that it feels that's it feels like a bargain. It feels like greed, like the mm. most profound theme of like greed, and and 
hubris, you know, right at the middle that you can control all of these elements around you and, and feeling bigger than yourself. And it, yes, it's done through a guy like Jerry Lundegaard but like <laughs> as an architect. And that's why they, that's why it's got such a, like a bent perverse absurdity is because it's all being framed through this little guy's life of these mm -hmm. huge Titanic themes and motivating factors that are ultimately corrupting. Mm -hmm. And, but that's it. It's just like, people have their perfect lives and they get greedy and then they get greedy and then they dig themselves into holes. And then as they start digging themselves down and start jeopardizing their life, jeopardizing their family, it's all for this greed. It's all for their own self-satisfaction. And it just digs them into a quagmire. And eventually they start attracting people, not very great characters that are around them. And it just ruins everything. And I think there's the fact that it's set in Fargo and then Minnesota, like it's like that whole, like, these are frontierish towns and they live hard mm -hmm. and the weather is unforgiving. And, you know, a lot of the chunk of the year, it's brutally, brutally cold. And so they kind of have a little bit more in touch with like the fragility of life. And so then the fact that this guy is on the frontier town already making all these gambles on gambles, on gambles, on gambles, on gambles. Mm -hmm. um, I think it just starts it, it. Yeah. It has this exponential effect. It's like every bad decision that keeps going on, it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger by different exponents. And then eventually we're here at the end of the movie. And I also love the, I love that by the time that Marge gets to them, like the so tragic about, you know, Miss, Miss Lundegaard being on the floor and obviously already um, Carl Showalter. Great. Everyone in this movie has a great name, but like Steve mm -hmm. Shemi finds her, has a conflict with Stormare and ends up in the wood chipper. But the fact that Marge just like walks out and finds him like casually throwing his accomplice into the wood chipper. It's just so like, there's no like huge, there's no huge like face off. There's no anything. It's just like, he's just doing it. And then he runs out into the ice. She takes him down yeah. cuffs him and takes him back to the car. Yeah. God, what a moment too. I remember like, I, I saw this movie. I think the first time I saw it, I was like 16 years old or something. And I watched it, you know, so many times since then. And I, I've been uh, with my partner, Sam for like five years now. And the, the first time I showed them Fargo was like, like being able to show somebody that you love far a Fargo. movie like Fargo for the yes. first time is like, I mean, it's that meme of like <laughs> watching a movie and you're just like watching them the whole time, like praying to God that they love it. And like, by the time we got to that scene, you're like, Lenny, that, Le you're like that Lenny meme. On the yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Anxiously waiting for your. Like every, every five minutes wanting, <laughs> wanting so badly to be like, Hey, do you love this? Like, this is the best movie ever made. Right. But like wanting, not wanting to ruin the moment either. And like what, just hoping that 98 minutes from now, they're going to say that was, that was phenomenal. That's one of the best movies I've ever Mitchell, seen. Mitchell has a Sam in his life. I have a Sam in my life. And we also have a common thing of both looking at our partners. Like, please love this. Please, please give me permission please, to put God. this on the rotation. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I've got, I've got a, um, I moved into my new place like a month ago. I haven't hung up all my movie posters yet, but I have a Fargo poster, which oh. Sam got me. And like, it's, I mean, that's, that's, you know, beautiful. And I think, but yeah, the, the Gare Grimsrud, which is another, you know, phenomenal name for Stormare's right, character. Um, when he's putting Busevi in the, in the wood chipper, Sam could not look at the screen, like had to look away because it was just yeah. like, so mortifying. And it is that kind of thing. It's the, it's exactly the thing that I was saying earlier with the kidnapping scene. Like it is absurd to the point of 
you want to laugh, but it's so mortifying and it feels so real that that you can't. You're just scared. You're also scared in that moment of what's going to happen to Marge, too. Like this pregnant lady, you know, stumbling around and this guy who has shown this entire movie that you don't fuck with him. But he's, you know, in that moment, he the wall comes down for him and he's panicked and he's scared. He doesn't want to go back to prison. So his desperation, he runs out onto the ice and gets gunned down. That's it's that one thing where you're like. And they play with you like, oh, for the love of God, please don't put Marge in front of this guy. Like, I don't know if my heart could take you putting Marge in front of this guy and her. And you kind of have the belief that she's going to be okay. Like she, she is going to get the jump on them. She's the smartest person in the room. She has been our, our lead character. As soon as the, the second that she walks into the movie, you're like, okay, yeah, she's yeah. just got this. But the fact that he's so f- confident at that moment of the isolation and the fact that he'll never be found. Yeah. It's just something beautiful about how casually he's just like, mm, destroying evidence, <laughs> mm, the whir of it going through. And, and then he turns around and there's a cop there. Yeah. And, and exactly as you said, there's that great exchange and what kills me every time. And this is like great movies universally have endings that are amazing. Like mm-hmm. it doesn't matter what genre, horror genre, period, epic, whatever, you name it, comedies, they have great endings. They they really play all the way until the last moment of the film. Mm-hmm. And the fact that you have this coda on the movie of Marge and Gare in a car together mm-hmm. and her talking about what this was for. You did all mm-hmm. this for this. For a little what, bit of money. And what is so beautiful, and I think, in some of what I've been researching and reading and and when just talking about this movie is like, she gets in his head. That's Mm -hmm. what's the best part of that scene. It's not that she's preaching. It's that she means it with every fiber of her soul that this is not worth it. Mm -hmm. And that it's the deepest regret that it's a beautiful day and that we're all alive in this world and that, for all for this tiny bit of money that is so immaterial in the in the grand scheme of things <clears throat> that people have been killed and i think that there's that weird thing where this guy who's been so terrifying for the entire movie has these flecks of humanity in him that like this person's not saying i'm an animal this person's not saying i'm a beast this person's not saying i'm some horrible evil thing this person's going look what you did like, look at the decisions that led you to this, where this was okay. It's not okay. Like, yeah. it's, it's not okay. It's so beautiful. And she, Frances McDormand has given big performances, little performances, but this, this like right in the pocket, the camera is not forgiving. You're right there. You have to give everything through just like this tiny little corridor of your mm. face. And she's just unbelievable in this scene. I can't yeah. get over it. Yeah, she fucking owns it. It speaks to, I mean, we haven't even mentioned that, like, she doesn't get introduced until, like, 25 minutes into this movie, which is genius. And that's, you know, speaking of no matter how many times you watch this, it feels like you're kind of watching it for the first time. Like, I always forget that she does not come into this movie until we're deep into the story. And it's kind of similar to, you know, Jackie Brown, which we talked about before, where, like, we are introduced to Jackie, then she goes away, and we kind of get all of the 
the ephemera around her we get like the the story that is being built and then she's inserted back into it yeah and then and she comes so, back and you're like oh shit this movie's called jackie brown yeah <laughs> <laughs> and like with with marge it's like she's the lead of this movie and it's like oh yeah of course she's the lead like you there's no question that she's the lead of the movie because it's like her story she's the one kind of observing all of this and commenting on it but it's it's all already underway before she gets in there and then I think that she just comes in and owns it. And that's such that speaks so much to what uh, Francis McDormand's doing, what Joel Cohen knows that, you know, what Joel and Ethan know that they have in Francis McDormand, the power that this woman who is not like, like you said, it's not a, like a Titanic performance. It's not, you know, a very like boisterous performance. It's very simple. It's very like low key in what she's doing, but it's so dynamic and it's so commanding. And she is able to kind of take over the screen and make you know that this movie is about her when there's all these other super colorful, really entertaining, really like fun characters around her. She still dominates this movie, which is, I mean, it's one of the best performances that there is period. But there's such a funny thing is like Ed Tom Bell, so Tommy Lee Jones's character, mm -hmm. has the same effect in in many ways as mm -hmm. Marge. In that, um, I'm trying to find it's Lou. Bruce Bone plays Lou, who's um, uh, Marge's like offsider, and and <laughs> so they have such a great chemistry. Those scenes in Fargo and No Country, um, where like the the big dog of the scene walks in and like tells you everything that happens. And mm -hmm. their offside is like completely clueless. Like, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, right, yeah. And I just, that's that, like, now that's the only, uh, that's another sort of Coen Brothers reference that I'll, I'll look at. And I'm like, oh, that's that's what that's what's happening here. Marge is now taking the movie. It's her movie now. And and yeah. her walking into that scene, it's so funny, those interactions. And it's just that. It's her charm of like, oh, well, this is that. And, yep this doesn't look right. And yet there was a bit of a conflict here and there's skid marks here and look out there. And it just all sort of happens. It's orchestrated so beautifully. And then her just coming back doing the whole, how catch them, you know, like this happened yeah. here and this happened there. And it's showing her us, her bona fides that she just walks in and just like can see the whole thing as it unfolds, but you're never expecting it. Like with Ed Tom Bell in no country, like he's old, he's, you know, grizzled, he's been there, he's seen it all. Yeah. But Marge is just interrupted from having some eggs. You know? <laughs> yeah. You know? And she's just casually walks out there and like, oh yeah, look at this. It's all it's all happening. Um it's yeah, it's 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 a beautiful, it's a beautiful little trick, but it's also brilliant. It's like because you're so in the world that by the time you meet Marge, she just knocks your socks off because you're like, I don't yeah. know how the hell I don't know what the hell is going to go wrong additionally to what we've already seen, but I don't know what else is going to go wrong for these characters. But as soon as Marge comes in, she like anchors it and then allows them to eke out their last bits of this really protracted negotiation. And then Jerry having to like argue with Stan and his father-in-law and this and that, and like all those things, it's all, all happening all the way through. Um, yeah. It's, it's really special. Yeah. And that connection to that kind of grounding that they do with her and John Carroll Lynch is so like finely tuned because it is that thing where we're like you said, we're introduced to her after seeing like one of the most horrific scenes of bloodshed in the movie with, you know, Busevi and Stormy are getting pulled over and having to do these murders. And then we're introduced to, to McDormand and John Carroll Lynch just waking up in the morning. It's a normal morning, you know, having the eggs and everything. And we get this running. I love the running thread of getting like little peeks into his life. She gets him like the worms for bait. She gets the Arby's for them to have together. <laughs> he's talking about, you know, he's 
he wants to get this stamp. He wants to, you know, get the one, the one to get approved for the stamp. And then we kind of get back to them at the end and he gets, he gets approved for a stamp, but it's not, it's not the premium stamp. It's not the one that gets used <laughs> the most. It's one that barely gets used, but she's still so proud of him for that. And it's still like such a win. And it's that thing where like the domestic angle of it really frames this whole story as this thing that's just happening in everyday life like this isn't larger than life anything because like you said like you and me are two people who love genre we love like noir and neo-noir we love like crime movies and like a lot of those movies make you feel like this is something that's never happened in the world before this is like beyond you know this is extraordinary and like that's part of what like draws you into it it's like the murkiest stuff that's ever happened like these people are you know bastards and like (laughs) everything but but fargo it's just it's the thing the thing with um the conversation with stormy at the end like it's just you know it's just a debt why are you spending your life doing this like look outside you know it's gorgeous out like it's a beautiful day why are you you don't have to be doing this right like you are choosing to do all this stuff shed blood put your life in danger you don't have to be doing any of that just go home go home to your pregnant wife i and there's two things i want to say firstly is it's so nice in to completely contradict the cop trope of bad family life and flipping Mm, it on its mm -hmm. head with a female cop and a husband at home who is totally happy and comfortable and confident in himself living his own life. And she is off living her own life. And he's, he he knows from a more like paternal protective perspective right now, all he's thinking about is making sure that she's fed so that their baby can come along and that's all Mm -hmm. happy. But their balance of life is so beautiful because there's not this angst. Like when are you coming home and blah, blah, blah. He, they just sort of trust each other. It's implicit. It's like, they're a good couple. They work, they worked before she's been a cop for a long time. They worked before they decided to have a baby. They work now. Like they're good. It's, it's all of that is implicit. And I think it's such a beautiful balance, but I also think (laughs) you and I need to, whenever a conversation is completely derailing on Twitter, we need to like have a Francis. What are you doing this? Go outside. It's a beautiful day. It's a beautiful day. (laughs) (laughs) We need to find that and just go, guys, stop. It's a beautiful day. Go outside. It's fine. Like, it's okay. Some of us like Babylon. Some of us didn't. It's fine. Go <laughs> oh, buddy. <laughs> it's fine. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Every day on there. It's, it's a nightmare. Yeah. I it's, oh, it's, it's just, it's beautiful. And I love to like thinking about, um, kind of this in comparison, I think one of the genius moves with Fargo that really sets the whole thing in motion is that William H. Macy's character, like his ineptitude is so crucial to kind of laying all those dominoes and dropping them down because it is like for people who watch a ton of, you know, crime movies, like this isn't Melville, right? Where like this guy has, he knows all the beats. He's like the smartest guy. The thing that you talked about earlier, the the sequence, the kind of running thing with him running the scam with the serial numbers and the guy needing the serial number is like, if this was catch me, if you can, he would have just forged, you know, whatever paper he needed to do and send him right over. And it's perfect. But he like wants to be that guy. He's watched so many movies that he thinks he can be that guy, but he's not that fucking guy. I think that off mic, maybe we were talking about the movie blue ruin, which I think does the exact same thing geniusly where you are watching like a crime thriller with a guy who is just a normal guy who does not belong in a crime thriller. (laughs) So much of it is predicated on him just fucking shit up and like not being good at this. And having like, there's no, there's no mentor. There's no like crime guy. He didn't bounce out of like a life. He's never been in the life. 
And yeah. those characters are so fascinating as well because when they get fused into a genre and it's almost like, oh, you don't know what this is. Like, you don't yeah. know what this is. <laughs> in the best possible way, you've like, we, you've, you've got yourself in a trap and you're never going to get out. You're, you're, you are digging your own grave. And unfortunately for Jerry Lundegaard, like he, you know, his actions dig the graves of like everyone around him. <laughs> everyone yeah, around geez. him is, is it's, it's, it's awful. And I think that that's, that's the magic of this movie is that it's hilarious. It's funny. It's so beautifully, tonally perfect as far as couples and relationships and those dynamics and family tensions that are so real, bureaucratic relationships that are so frustrating and silly. Um, and, but it also, it, 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 it actually does have real tragedy. And so, and it doesn't, it's not glib about the real tragedy. It's very, mm. it's very kind of somber about it. And, and, um, it's, it's kind of magic, even though it has the most deceptive, uh, title card of all time that this, is the <laughs> um, it, it is, I think, I don't think it's actually a lie. I think it is true. Like the, the, mm. there's a lot of truth, poetic truth in the movie. And I, I just love it to pieces. It's been a real treat talking to you about it. You too, man. Thanks for having me on for it. Is there anything you want to immediately plug? Because this will come up in about a week's time after we're recording. Is there any stuff that you're working on? Because I know that you're always tinkering. You're always formulating things that are happening. So is there anything that is going on that you want to plug really quickly so people can check you out? Um, I would say probably by the time or maybe the same day as that this drops, I'm going to be on an episode of the B-Side podcast with our friends uh, Dan Mecca and Connor O'Donnell. Love those uh, boys. We're yes. doing an episode on Cameron Diaz. So if people want to oh. check that out. Definitely check that out. I will be checking that out. I love that show. Love those boys. I've been talking to them um, about some B sides coming up. Uh, so excited, yeah. excited, excited to get going. All right. Well, that's that is amazing, Mitch. Thank you so much once again. You're brilliant. And this is the other reason. The other day, I'll, 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 this is a bit of inside baseball. I asked Mitch as an editor of Letterbox. I was like, "Are there going to be directors coming from Letterbox?" <laughs> and Mitch said. Well, we use this, uh, the, is it the movie database? Is yeah, yeah, TMDB. TMDB. The movie database, so where movies are, that feeds into Letterbox. And the reason that he doesn't know, but I'm going to reveal to him here, selfishly, I would really like the Miami nice cut of Miami Vice. Oh, so I would eventually. fucking love that, man. <laughs> so to see, I want to see who's logging the cut, who I've shared it with, who's logging it, like all of our yeah. all of our friends and family. But uh, yeah, I, 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 that, that was part of the reason. That was the selfish end of the beginning of that conversation. Watching... <laughs> Watching, I, I think I watched the yards. If you people are looking at my letterbox last year, they would see that I watched the yards mm. like three times. And the reason mm -hmm. I watched the yards three times is I watched the original theatrical cut, then I watched the director's cut, and then I watched the director's cut with commentary from Soderbergh and James yeah. Gray. And so I felt like a psycho logging it three times on letterbox. <laughs> and I was like, I just want people to know that, you know, for us, especially in physical media, you're watching different versions all the time. So I was yeah. like, I really want to figure out if there's a way that we can make this happen so I don't look like such a psycho. Yeah, I definitely want there to be. It's it's out of my hands, but I have I have tried to to move the needle on that, and I'll keep trying. We'll keep we'll keep trying to move the needle. You're the best. Thank you so much for doing this. Always a pleasure. And we'll uh, we'll get back together soon and talk about some other masterpiece on our list of masterpieces <laughs> that we've got here to talk about. Sounds great, buddy.